Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we go to the Tectonic stage at the recent FT Weekend Festival in London, where mathematician Marcus de Sotoy, Professor of Public Understanding of Science at Oxford University, challenged an audience to see if they could tell the difference between computer-generated art and the real thing. Marcus has been a guest on Tectonic before, where he spoke about his book, The Creativity Code, how AI is learning to write, paint, and think. In this edited version of his talk, he is joined by pianist Moses Ng, performing AI-composed music alongside works by Bach and Chopin. That sounds like a Bach chorale, but can you tell whether it was written by the Baroque composer or by a contemporary AI? Listen on to find out. I think in this climate of AI becoming so dominant, there's a fear amongst all of us about whether our jobs are going to be under threat. But I think there is one thing that we all regard as something which is uniquely human, almost defines us as humans, which is our ability to be creative. And certainly as a mathematician, I use the fact that I believe mathematics is a highly creative subject as my protection against a lot of people who think that surely mathematicians are going to be the first to be put out of a job via computer. I was on a committee at the Royal Society. The Royal Society was very interested in looking at the impact that machine learning, deep learning was going to have on us over the next 10 years. And I was very privileged to be asked to be on this committee to try and assess the impact Margaret Bowden was there. She's been thinking for a long while about what she calls these tin cans might be able to do. And she has a nice working definition of creativity. And I think we can perhaps argue about what creativity really is, but this is quite useful as a test. She thinks it should be novel. Well, computers can make a lot of new things and we can judge that quite objectively, but it also should be surprising and have value. Now, surprise and value are much more subjective. I might value a poem that I've written and you'll think it's a load of crap. Surprise as well, it can vary from one culture to another, one historical period to another. But here's the power of this machine learning because what machine learning does is to take a lot of data and learn from that data about what move to make next. So perhaps it takes data of things that we find surprising, things we value, and it can learn what those key things are to be able to produce its own move. The exciting thing for me about the role that AI is playing is in moving us out of our comfort zone. I think that as humans, we often just start repeating behaviours because they work. I certainly recognise that in my own research. And we start behaving a little bit too much like machines because that works, I'm going to do it again. So my belief, and it's the kind of message of my book, is that I think AI may have the potential to push us out of these comfort zones we get into, stop us behaving like machines, and may help us to behave much more like creative humans again. So that's been the kind of mission of this book, which is to see this new AI that's appearing. Maybe it can be creative in things like the arts or mathematics. 
And actually, I'm not the first to think about this. Ada Lovelace, the first coder in history, we celebrate her anniversary each October, she was the first to recognize that machines might be able to do really interesting things by giving them instructions to do cool stuff. So she saw this difference engine that Babbage had created, and she started to think, well, I can make that thing do much more interesting things than just mathematical calculations. And already in the notes that she wrote for this machine, the code that she wrote, she was speculating the engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent. She was already seeing that music is full of patterns. Maybe you can get a machine to put those patterns together and create music. But she had a word of caution about the role of a machine in creating something like music. And she said, it's desirable to guard against the possibility of exaggerated ideas that might arise as the powers of the analytic engine. It has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we order it to perform. And I think that has been the thought in the past that, well, we're writing the code. We're telling the machine what to do. So we're the ones who are understanding being creative. We're just getting a machine to implement it maybe faster, deeper, further. But the creativity is really with the coder. They're writing the code, telling the machine what to do. Now, this is why I think there's been a change which might challenge Lovelace's belief, because if code can learn and change and mutate, just as we as humans do, we learn best when we fail and that we learn how to do something better. This code is changing, mutating as it encounters new data, such that the code by the end actually is distinct from the original code that was written. So there's beginning to be a disconnect from the original coder, the person who wrote the code, and the final code that appears. And the code that we're now producing, we don't really understand quite how it's making its decisions, quite because it's so rich and has changed and evolved. So I believe there's now a real challenge to Lovelace's belief that really it can't originate anything. I think at some point we might be able to say it's the code now which is being created because the coder doesn't actually know how and why it's making its decisions. So you've probably heard of the Turing test, which is can a computer pass itself off in an interaction online, for example, and you can't tell between the human and the computer. There's now something called the Lovelace test. This is the challenge of whether a machine can originate a creative work of art such that the process is repeatable. Now, this is important because I think it shouldn't just be some random interaction with the environment. So actually, the code doesn't know quite why it made that decision because it's something randomly coming from the outside. It should know in some sense. It should be deterministically programmed into the computer such that it could reproduce it. Yet the programmer is unable to explain how the algorithm produces its output. So there's the challenge. Can we get the code actually being the creative one rather than just simply the coder? What about that initial challenge of music that Ada Lovelace gave us? There's something very special about music, and it's the connection with mathematics, because music is a lot about patterns and recognizing those patterns and patterns mutating. And I listen to a lot of classical music. If I stick on Radio 3, I can pretty quickly identify the composer that I'm listening to. Why? Because they have signature characteristics about the way they write their music. If there are those patterns inside there that I can pick up, it's something that an AI is going to be able to pick up too and may be able to learn and put together to make a new piece of music. So we've got a wonderful pianist from the Junior Royal Academy who's going to offer our new challenges. So I'm going to invite Moses Ng up to the keyboard. Give him a round of applause. Yep. Thank you, Moses. Now, AI always starts with Bach. 
when it comes to music. Because Bach has a very algorithmic process to it. If you take something like the musical offerings, Bach even wrote these in code. He gives you a little seed of music and a kind of weird rule, and you have to expand the music to be able to play the piece. Perhaps it's just one line of music, but there's a cliff upside down at the other end. You realize you have to play the thing forwards and backwards. So there's already quite a lot of algorithms at work to create the complexity of Bach. So we've got two pieces of Bach that we're going to play for you. One is being created by Bach, and the other one is being created by an AI learning on Bach style. Now, these are two chorales, so they're quite nice because they're very closed form, four voices. You're going to listen to the first one and then the second one, and then you're going to vote which one you think is the AI. So over to Moses, we're going to hear the first chorale. And now the second chorale. A big round of applause for Moses for our chorales. Thank you. I think he played those very well. In fact, he doesn't know yet which one is the AI and which one is the real Bach. I'm going to ask Moses, put you on the spot. Which one do you think is giving itself away as perhaps the artificial one? Uh, I think it might be the first one. Ah, the first one. And what for you is feeling artificial about the first one? I think, like, the, for example, the chord progressions, they feel more awkward and less what Bach might have or more awkward and less like Bach. Okay, so let's see what you're thinking. Actually, a little bit of an edge for the second one being artificial. Yes, why did you think the second one was artificial? A, a few, few chords that sounded a bit off. Actually, this is very unforgiving because you get one little thing which is wrong, it kind of gives it away. You no, I'm sure the harmony was, was not Bach-like at the end of the first one. Let's see, shall we? Which one is the AI? So the red one is the first one and the orange one is the second one. So it's the orange one. The second one was actually AI. That's Bach, the first one. <laughs> I think that just really goes to show how convincing this was. I think the second one is slightly more interesting, actually. But Bach chorales are pretty boring. I couldn't listen to those for very long. Bach had to punch out these chorales every Sunday. I think he'd be quite grateful for a bit of software that would do this for him. So a little bit more interesting challenge. What about Chopin? Can it learn some Chopin? So we've got two pieces that Mosaic is, is going to have a go at. One of these is created by artificial intelligence, one by Chopin himself, Mazurkas, his bread and butter. Over to Moses for our first Mazurka.
Oh, amazing, what a performance, yeah, great. But was that Chopin or not? Let's hear the second mazurka. Fantastic. Was that first one artificial or the second one artificial? Both had a little humor to them, so can AI be humorous like Chopin can? So I'm going to put you on the spot, Moses, again. Which one was the artificial one? I think the first one was the artificial one. The first one was the artificial one, and what for you was giving it away? I think the second one, I think he's able to make it easier than it sounds by writing in a way that's more adaptive for the shape of like, the human hand. I think this is really interesting. So what Moses said there is that Chopin is going to try and make this sound complicated, but actually sit more easily on the hands. And I think this is one of the things about artificial intelligence. It isn't embodied, so it doesn't care about playing with fingers and things like this. So let's see what you're thinking. Let's reveal. Is it the first one? Yes, in fact, the first one. So Moses, you did get it right. And I think it's interesting, this idea of embodiment, because composers will write so that it fits very nicely on the hand, but AI doesn't have to think about that. And it's one of the big distinguishers about AI and human is that we're embodied and AI at the moment isn't. So could embodiment not be incorporated into the program? In some sense, it probably already is, because if it's learning on material that already has embodiment as part of it, it might be picking that up. But certainly, a lot of progress in AI is about putting the intelligence inside a physical body and putting those physical limitations on as an attempt. But actually, you know what? That will help us to create intelligence like ours. But I think the really interesting thing is to try and create new intelligence that may be different from one that's embodied. Great to create things of a similar nature, but again, I want to push into the new. And this story of Bernard Lubat, a jazz musician who had a piece of AI learning on his jazz riffs, the world of his sound world, I think this is exciting because when he started to play with this AI, this was his response. He said, well, the system shows me ideas I could have developed, but it would have taken me years to actually develop. It's years ahead of me, yet everything it plays is unquestionably me. And here again, we see the AI taking the world that we have and saying, but there are other things you can do with this. You've got stuck in a small corner of your sound world, yet with your world, you can do so much more. This AI was pushing him to be more creative, breaking out of the kind of mechanical way that he was playing. Okay, music, quite successful. What about the written word? Are we going to have an AI in a couple of years signing books for you? Well, I think the written word is somewhere that actually AI is having a lot of trouble with because the written word has so much more than just being given language. There's culture and history, so much more world of association. 
that it finds difficult to cope with. But it is quite good at locally producing texts, which is pretty convincing. There was a company called Botnik who loved Harry Potter, and they decided seven volumes is quite a lot of material to be able to learn from. So it took an algorithm and gave it all of the seven volumes of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling's writing, got it to learn the style, the kind of themes, and produce an eighth volume, or at least the beginnings of it. I love the title for this. It's called Harry Potter and the Portrait of What Looked Like a Large Pile of Ash. <laughs> a great title for a book. Anyway, it started off pretty well. Magic. It was something that Harry Potter thought was very good. Well, already it's picked up that magic is a major theme in these books. That's pretty smart of it. Leathery sheets of rain lashed at Harry's ghost as he walked across the grounds. I love that. Leathery sheets of rain. What a lovely image. I'm not sure I ever come up with such an interesting image. As he walked across the grounds towards the castle, then it started to lose the plot a little. Ron was standing there doing a kind of frenzied tap dance. He saw Harry and immediately began to eat Hermione's family. Ron's Ron shirt was just as bad as Ron himself. So completely began to lose the plot. And this is what's interesting. A lot of the AI that's being produced can make things which are locally quite convincing, but it starts to lose a sense of global structure. Even with the music. If you listen to the jazz continuator that learned on Bernard Lubat's stuff, to start with, it's pretty amazing. And you listen to it. But after about five minutes of it, you get completely bored because it doesn't know where it's going. It's got no overarching narrative to it. And this seems to be the real challenge at the moment with the AI that's being produced. But, you know, I think this, uh, it asks the question, why are we driven as humans to create things? Why do we paint? Why do we write music? Why do we write novels? Actually, I think it's trying to get to the heart of one of the big problems we have on the scientific books, which is the hard problem of consciousness. The challenge of really understanding what it's like to be somebody else, to see how you see the world. So I think art partly is our best fMRI scanner into understanding the inner world of somebody else or sharing my way of seeing the world. And George Eliot certainly summed this up. The greatest benefit we owe to the artist, whether painter, poet or novelist, is the extension of our sympathies. Art is the nearest thing to life. It's a mode of amplifying experience and extending our contact with our fellow men beyond the bounds of our personal lot. And I think if you look back in history, when did we start to become creative? Not just making tools, but something just for the sake of sharing our inner worlds. 40,000 years ago, I suspect that that's also when consciousness began to appear inside humans, that consciousness and creativity go very much hand in hand. Now, what about computers? I think at some stage, this thing here in my pocket will become conscious. I think at some stage, it will suddenly go, iPhone think, therefore iPhone am. Is there an inner world there? And we're going to need to know about that. And I think, actually, the art that it produces might be our best tool for understanding whether there is an inner world there. And in particular, as Wittgenstein said, if a lion could speak, we could not understand him. When a machine becomes conscious, it's going to be a very different consciousness from ours. And I think the art that it will produce will probably be the best way of telling what it's really like to be a piece of AI. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners, so please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. This episode of Tectonic is produced by Persis Love. <laughs>